Chapter Seventeen of the History of Pendennis. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The History of Pendennis by William Makepeace Thackeray. Chapter Seventeen, which concludes the first part of this history. The curate had gone on his daily errand to Fair Oaks, and was upstairs in Penn's study pretending to read with his pupil in the early part of that very afternoon when Mrs. Portman, after transacting business with Mrs. Pybus, had found the weather so exceedingly fine that she pursued her walk as far as Fair Oaks, in order to pay a visit to her dear friend there. In the course of their conversation, the rector's lady told Mrs. Pendennis and the major a very great secret about the curate, Mr. Smirk which was no less than that he had an attachment, a very old attachment, which he had long kept quite private. "'And on whom is it that Mr. Smirk has bestowed his heart?' asked Mrs. Pendennis, with a superb air, but rather an inward alarm. "'Why, my dear,' the other lady answered, "'when he first came and used to dine at the rectory, people said we wanted him for Myra, and we were forced to give up asking him. Then they used to say he was smitten in another quarter, but I always contradicted it for my part, and said that you—' "'That I!' cried Mrs. Pendennis. "'People are very impertinent, I am sure. Mr. Smirk came here as Arthur's tutor, and I am surprised that anybody should dare to speak so. Upon my soul, it is a little too much,' the Major said, laying down the newspaper and the double eyeglass. "'I've no patience with that Mrs. Pipus,' Helen continued indignantly. "'I told her there was no truth in it.' "'Mrs. Portman said. "'I always said so, my dear, "'and now it comes out that my demure gentleman "'has been engaged to a young lady, "'Miss Thompson of Clapham Common, ever so long. "'And I am delighted for my part, "'and on Myra's account, too, "'for an unmarried curate is always objectionable "'about one's house, "'and, of course, it is strictly private. "'But I thought I would tell you, "'as it might remove unpleasantnesses. "'But mind, not one word, if you please, "'about the story.' Mrs. Pendennis said with perfect sincerity that she was exceedingly glad to hear the news, and hoped Mr. Smirk, who was a very kind and amiable man, would have a deserving wife. And when her visitor went away, Helen and her brother talked of the matter with great satisfaction, the kind lady rebuking herself for her haughty behaviour to Mr. Smirk, whom she had avoided of late, instead of being grateful to him for his constant attention to Arthur. "'Gratitude to this kind of people,' the Major said, "'is very well.' but familiarity is out of the question. This gentleman gives his lessons and receives his money, like any other master. You are too humble, my good soul. There must be distinctions in ranks, and that sort of thing. I told you before, you were too kind to Mr. Smirk. But Helen did not think so, and now that Arthur was going away, and she bethought her how very polite Mr. Smirk had been, how he had gone on messages for her, how he had brought books and copied music, how he had taught Laura so many things, and given her so many kind presents, her heart smote her on account of her ingratitude towards the curate, so much so that when he came down from study with pen, and was hankering about the hall previous to his departure, she went out and shook hands with him, with rather a blushing face, and begged him to come into her drawing-room, where she said they now never saw him, and as there was to be rather a good dinner that day, she invited Mr. Smirk to partake of it, and we may be sure that he was too happy to accept such a delightful summons. Eased by the above report of all her former doubts and misgivings regarding the curate, Helen was exceedingly kind and gracious to Mr. Smirk during dinner, redoubling her attentions, perhaps, because Major Pendennis was very high and reserved with his nephew's tutor. 
when Pendennis asked Smirk to drink wine. He addressed him as if he were a sovereign speaking to a petty retainer, in a manner so condescending that even Pen laughed at it, although quite ready for his part to be as conceited as most young men are. But Smirk did not care for the impertinences of the Major, so long as he had his hostess's kind behaviour, and he passed a delightful time by her side at table, exerting all his powers of conversation to please her, talking in a manner both clerical and worldly about the fancy bazaar and the great missionary meeting, about the last new novel, and the bishop's excellent sermon about the fashionable parties in London an account of which he read in the newspapers. In fine, he neglected no art, by which a college divine, who has both sprightly and serious talents, a taste for the genteel, an irreproachable conduct, and a susceptible heart, will try and make himself agreeable to the person on whom he has fixed his affections. Major Pendennis came yawning out of the dining-room very soon after his sister and little Laura had left the apartment. "'What an insufferable bore that man is!' "'And how he did talk,' the Major said. "'He has been very good to Arthur, who is very fond of him,' Mrs. Pendennis said. "'I wonder who this Miss Thompson is, whom he is going to marry.' "'I always thought the fellow was looking in another direction,' said the Major. "'And in what?' asked Mrs. Pendennis quite innocently. "'Toward my apartment?' "'Towards Helen Pendennis, if you must know,' answered her brother-in-law. "'Towards me!' "'Impossible!' Helen said, who knew perfectly well that such had been the case. His marriage will be a very happy thing. I hope Arthur will not take too much wine. Now Arthur, flushed with a good deal of pride at the privilege of having the keys of the cellar, and remembering that a very few more dinners would probably take place which he and his dear friend Smirk could share, had brought up a liberal supply of claret for the company's drinking. And when the elders with little Laura left him, he and the curate began to pass the wine very freely. One bottle speedily yielded up the ghost. Another shed more than half its blood before the two topers had been much more than half an hour together. Penn, with a hollow laugh and voice, had drunk off one bumper to the falsehood of women, and had said sardonically that wine at any rate was a mistress who never deceived, and was sure to give a man a welcome. Smirk gently said that he knew for his part some women who were all truth and tenderness, and casting up his eyes towards the ceiling— and heaving a sigh as if evoking some being dear and unmentionable, he took up his glass and drained it, and the rosy liquor began to suffuse his face. Penn trolled over some verses he had been making that morning, in which he informed himself that the woman who had slighted his passion could not be worthy to win it, that he was waking from love's mad fever, and, of course, under these circumstances, proceeded to leave her and to quit a heartless deceiver that a name which had one day been famous in the land might again be heard in it, and that though he never should be the happy and careless boy he was but a few months since, or his heart be what it had been ere passion had filled it, and grief had well-nigh killed it, that though him personally death was as welcome as life, and that he would not hesitate to part with the latter, but for the love of one's kind being whose happiness depended on his own, Yet he hoped to show he was a man worthy of his race, and that one day the false one should be brought to know how great was the treasure, and noble the heart which she had flung away. Penn, we say, who was a very excitable person, rolled out these verses in his rich, sweet voice, which trembled with emotion whilst our young poet spoke. He had a trick of blushing when in this excited state, 
and his large and honest grey eyes also exhibited proofs of a sensibility so genuine, hearty, and manly, that Miss Costigan, if she had a heart, must needs have softened towards him, and very likely she was, as he said, altogether unworthy of the affection which he lavished upon her. The sentimental smirk was caught by the emotion which agitated his young friend. He grasped Penn's hand over the dessert dishes and wine glasses. He said the verses were beautiful, that Penn was a poet, a great poet, and likely by heaven's permission to run a great career in the world. "'Go on and prosper, dear Arthur,' he cried. "'The wounds under which at present you suffer are only temporary, and the very grief you endure will cleanse and strengthen your heart.' I have always prophesied the greatest and brightest things of you, as soon as you have corrected some failings and weaknesses of character which at present belong to you. But you will get over these, my boy. You will get over these, and when you are famous and celebrated, as I know you will be, will you remember your old tutor and the happy early days of your youth? Penn swore he would with another shake of the hand across the glasses and apricots. I shall never forget how kind you have been to me, Smirk he said. I don't know what I should have done without you. You are my best friend. Am I really, Arthur? said Smirk, looking through his spectacles, and his heart began to beat so that he thought Penn must also hear it throbbing. My best friend, my friend for ever, Penn said. God bless you, old boy. And he drank up the last glass of the second bottle of the famous wine which his father had laid in, which his uncle had bought, which Lord Levant had imported, and which now, like a slave indifferent, was ministering pleasure to its present owner, and giving its young master delectation. "'We'll have another bottle, old boy,' Penn said. "'By Jove we will. Claret goes for nothing. My uncle was telling me that he saw Sheridan drink five bottles at Brooks, besides a bottle of maraschino. "'This is some of the finest wine in England,' he says. "'So it is, by Jove. There's nothing like it. Nunc vino pellit caras, crass ingens iterabimus egg. Fill your glass, old smirk. A hogshead of it won't do you any harm. And Mr. Penn began to sing the drinking song out of De Freischoitz. The dining room windows were open, and his mother was softly pacing on the lawn outside, while little Laura was looking at the sunset. The fresh, sweet notes of the boy's voice came to the widow. It cheered her kind heart to hear him sing. "'You, you are taking too much wine, Arthur,' Mr. Smirk said softly. "'You are exciting yourself.' "'No,' Penn said. "'Women give headaches, but this don't. "'Fill your glass, old fellow, and let's drink. "'I say, Smirk, my boy, let's drink to her. "'Your her, I mean, not mine, for whom I swear I'll care no more. "'No, not a penny. No, not a fig. No, not a glass of wine. "'Tell us about the lady, Smirk. "'I've often seen you sighing about her.' "'Oh!' said Smirk, and his beautiful cambric shirt-front and glistening studs heaved with the emotion which agitated his gentle and suffering bosom. "'Oh, what a sigh!' Penn cried, growing very hilarious. "'Fill, my boy, and drink the toast. You can't refuse a toast. No gentleman refuses a toast. Here's her health, and good luck to you, and may she soon be Mrs. Smirk.' "'Do you say so?' Smirk said, all of a tremble. "'Do you really say so, Arthur?' "'Say so? Of course I say so. Down with it. Here's Mrs. Smirk's good health. Hip-hip-hooray!' Smirk convulsively gulped down his glass of wine, and Penn waved his over his head, cheering so as to make his mother and Laura wander on the lawn, and his uncle, who was dozing over the paper in the drawing-room, start and say to himself, "'That boy's drinking too much.' Smirk put down the glass. 
"'I accept the omen,' gasped out the blushing curate. "'Oh, my dear Arthur, you—you you know her. "'What, Myra Portman? "'I wish you joy. "'She's got a devilish large waist, but I wish you joy, old fellow.' "'Oh, Arthur,' groaned the curate again, and nodded his head speechless. "'Beg your pardon. "'Sorry I offended you. "'But she has got a large waist, you know. "'Devilish large waist.' pen continued the third bottle evidently beginning to act upon the young gentleman it's not miss portman the other said in a voice of agony is it anybody at chatteris or at clapham somebody here no it ain't old pybus it can't be miss rolt at the factory she's only fourteen it's somebody rather older than i am pen the curate cried looking up at his friend and then guiltily casting his eyes down into his plate pen burst out laughing it's madame fribsby by jove it's madame fribsby madame frib by the immortal gods the curate could contain no more oh pen he cried how can you suppose that any of those of those more than ordinary beings you have named could have an influence upon this heart when i have been daily in the habit of contemplating perfection i may be insane i may be madly ambitious i may be presumptuous but for two years my heart has been filled by one image, and has known no other idol. Haven't I loved you as a son, Arthur? Say, hasn't Charles Smirk loved you as a son? Yes, old boy, you've been very good to me, Penn said, whose liking, however, for his tutor was not by any means of the filial kind. My means, rushed on Smirk, are at present limited, I own, and my mother is not so liberal as might be desired, but what she has will be mine at her death. Were she to hear of my marrying a lady of rank and good fortune, my mother would be liberal. I am sure she would be liberal. Whatever I have, or subsequently inherit, and it's five hundred a year at the very least, would be settled upon her, and, and, and you at my death, that is. "'What the deuce do you mean? And what have I to do with your money?' cried out Penn in a puzzle. "'Arthur, Arthur!' exclaimed the other wildly. "'You say I am your dearest friend.' let me be more oh can't you see that the angelic being i love the purest the best of women is no other than your dear dear angel of a mother my mother cried out arthur jumping up and sober in a minute pooh damn it smirk you must be mad she's seven or eight years older than you are did you find that any objection cried smirk piteously and alluding of course to the elderly subject of pen's own passion the lad felt the hint and blushed quite red the cases are not similar, Smirk, he said, and the allusion might have been spared. A man may forget his own rank and elevate any woman to it, but allow me to say our positions are very different. How do you mean, dear Arthur? the curate interposed sadly, cowering as he felt that his sentence was about to be read. Mean? said Arthur. I mean what I say. My tutor, I say my tutor, has no right to ask a lady of my mother's rank of life to marry him. It's a breach of confidence. I say it's a liberty you take, Smirk. It's a liberty. Mean indeed. Oh, Arthur. The curate began to cry with clasped hands and a scared face, but Arthur gave another stamp with his foot and began to pull at the bell. Don't let's have any more of this. We'll have some coffee, if you please, he said with a majestic air, and the old butler entered at the summons. Arthur bade him to serve that refreshment. John said he had just carried coffee into the drawing-room, where his uncle was asking for Master Arthur, and the old man gave a glance of wonder at the three empty claret-bottles. Smirk said he thought he'd—he'd he'd rather not go into the drawing-room. 
on which Arthur haughtily said, "'As you please,' and called for Mr. Smirk's horse to be brought round. The poor fellow said he knew the way to the stable, and would get his pony himself, and he went into the hall and sadly put on his coat and hat. Penn followed him out uncovered. Helen was still walking up and down the soft lawn as the sun was setting, and the curate took off his hat and bowed by way of farewell, and passed on to the door leading to the stable court, by which the pair disappeared. Smirk knew the way to the stable, as he said, well enough. He fumbled at the girths of the saddle, which Penn fastened for him, and put on the bridle and led the pony into the yard. The boy was touched by the grief which appeared on the other's face as he mounted. Penn held out his hand, and Smirk wrung it silently. "'I say, Smirk,' he said in an agitated voice, "'forgive me if I have said anything harsh, for you have always been very, very kind to me. But it can't be, old fellow, it can't be. Be a man. God bless you.' Smirk nodded his head silently and rode out of the lodge-gate, and Penn looked after him for a couple of minutes, until he disappeared down the road, and the clatter of the pony's hoofs died away. Helen was still lingering on the lawn, waiting until the boy came back. She put his hair off his forehead and kissed it fondly. She was afraid he had been drinking too much wine. Why had Mr. Smirk gone away without any tea? He looked at her with a kind humour beaming in his eyes. Smirk is unwell, he said, with a laugh. For a long while Helen had not seen the boy looking so cheerful. He put his arm round her waist and walked her up and down the walk in front of the house. Laura began to drub on the drawing-room window and nod and laugh from it. "'Come along, you two people,' cried on Major Pendennis. "'Your coffee is getting quite cold.' When Laura was gone to bed, Penn, who was big with his secret, burst out with it, and described the dismal but ludicrous scene which had occurred. Helen heard of it with many blushes, which became her pale face very well, and a perplexity which Arthur roguishly enjoyed. "'Confound the fellow's impudence!' Major Pendennis said, as he took his candle. "'Where will the assurance of these people stop?' Penn and his mother had a long talk that night, full of love, confidence, and laughter, and the boy somehow slept more soundly and woke up more easily than he had done for many months before. Before the great Mr. Dolphin quitted Chatteris, he not only made an advantageous engagement with Miss Fotheringay, but he liberally left with her a sum of money to pay off any debts which the little family might have contracted during their stay in the place, and which, mainly through the lady's own economy and management, were not considerable. The small account with the spirit merchant, which Major Pendennis had settled, was the chief of Captain Costigan's debts, and though the captain at one time talked about repaying every farthing of the money, it never appears that he executed his menace, nor did the laws of honour in the least call upon him to accomplish that threat. When Miss Costigan had seen all the outstanding bills paid to the uttermost shilling, she handed over the balance to her father, who broke out into hospitalities to all his friends, gave the little creeds more apples and gingerbread than he had ever bestowed upon them, so that the widow creed ever after held the memory of her lodger in veneration, and the young ones wept bitterly when he went away, and in a word managed the money so cleverly that it was entirely expended before many days, and that he was compelled to draw upon Mr. Dolphin for a sum to pay for travel expenses when the time for their departure arrived. There was held in an inn at that county town a weekly meeting of a festive, almost a riotous character, of a society of gentlemen who called themselves the Buccaneers. Some of the choice spirits of Chatteris belonged to this cheerful club. Graves, the apothecary, 
than whom a better fellow never put a pipe in his mouth and smoked it smart the talented and humorous portrait painter of high street croker an excellent auctioneer and the uncompromising hicks the able editor for twenty-three years of the county chronicle and chatteris champion were amongst the crew of the buccaneers whom also bingley the manager liked to join of a saturday evening whenever he received permission from his lady costigan had also been an occasional buccaneer but a want of punctuality of payments had of late somewhat excluded him from the society where he was subject to disagreeable remarks from the landlord who said that a buccaneer who didn't pay his shot was utterly unworthy to be a marine bandit but when it became known to the ears as the clubists call themselves familiarly that miss fotheringay had made a splendid engagement a great revolution of feeling took place in the club regarding captain costigan solly mine host of the grapes and i need not say as worthy a fellow as ever stood behind a bar told the gents in the buccaneer's room one night how noble the captain had behaved having been round and paid off all his ticks in chatteris including his score of three pound fourteen here and pronounced that cos was a good fella a gentleman at bottom and he solly had always said so and finally worked upon the feelings of the buccaneers to give the captain a dinner the banquet took place on the last night of Costigan's stay at Chatteris, and was served in Solly's accustomed manner. As good a plain dinner of old English fare as ever smoked on a table was prepared by Mrs. Solly, and about eighteen gentlemen sat down to the festive board. Mr. Jubber, the eminent draper of High Street, was in the chair, having the distinguished guest of the club on his right. The able and consistent Hicks officiated as croupier on the occasion, most of the gentlemen of the club were present and h foker esq and spavin esq friends of captain costigan were also participators in the entertainment the cloth having been drawn the chairman said costigan there is wine if you like but the captain preferring punch that liquor was voted by acclamation and non novice having been sung in admirable style by messrs bingley hicks and bulby of the cathedral choir than whom a more jovial spirit ne'er tossed off a bumper or emptied a bowl the chairman gave the health of the king which was drunk with the loyalty of chatteris men and then without further circumlocution proposed their friend captain costigan after the enthusiastic cheering which rang through old chatteris had subsided captain costigan rose in reply and made a speech of twenty minutes in which he was repeatedly overcome by his emotions the gallant captain said he must be pardoned for incoherence if his heart was too full to speak he was quitting a city celebrated for its antiquity its hospitality the beauty of its women the manly fidelity generosity and joviality of its men cheers he was going from that ancient and venerable city of which while memory held her sate he should never think without the fondest emotion to a metropolis where the talents of his daughter were about to have full play and where he would watch over her like a guardian angel he should never forget that it was at chatteris she had acquired the skill which she was about to exercise in another sphere and in her name and his own jack costigan thanked and blessed them the gallant officer's speech was received with tremendous cheers mr hicks croupier in a brilliant and energetic manner proposed miss fotheringay's health captain costigan returned thanks in a speech full of feeling and eloquence mr jubber proposed the drama and the chatteris theatre and mr bingley was about to rise but was prevented by captain costigan who as long connected with the chatteris theatre and on behalf of his daughter thanked the company he informed them that he had been in garrison at gibraltar and at malta and had been at the taking of flushing 
the duke of york was a patron of the drama he had the honour of dining with his royal highness and the duke of kent many times and the former had justly been named the friend of the soldier cheers the army was then proposed and captain costigan returned thanks in the course of the night he sang his well-known songs the deserter the shanban boat the little pig under the bed and the vale of avoca the evening was a great triumph for him it ended all triumphs and all evenings end and the next day miss costigan having taken leave of all her friends having been reconciled to miss rouncey to whom she left a necklace and a white satin gown the next day he and miss costigan had places in the competitor coach rolling by the gates of fair oaks lodge and pendennis never saw them tom smith the coachman pointed out fair oaks to mr costigan who sat on the box smelling of rum and water and the captain said it was a poor place and added you should see castle costigan county mayo me boy which tom said he should like very much to see they were gone and pen had never seen them he only knew of their departure by its announcement in the county paper the next day and straight galloped over to chatteris to hear the truth of this news they were gone indeed a card of lodgings to let was placed in the dear little familiar window he rushed up into the room and viewed it over he sat ever so long in the old window-seat looking into the dean's garden whence he and emily had so often looked out together he walked with a sort of terror into her little empty bedroom it was swept out and prepared for newcomers the glass which had reflected her fair face was shining ready for her successor the curtains lay square folded on the little bed he flung himself down and buried his head on the vacant pillow laura had netted a purse into which his mother had put some sovereigns and pen had found it on his dressing-table that very morning he gave one to the little servant who had been used to wait upon the costigans and another to the children because they said they were very fond of her it was but a few months back but what years ago it seemed since he had first entered that room he felt that it was all done the very missing her at the coach had something fatal in it blank weary utterly wretched and lonely the poor lad felt his mother saw she was gone by his look when he came home he was eager to fly too now as were other folks around about chatteris poor smirk wanted to go away from the sight of the siren widow foker began to think he had had enough of Bamoth, and that a few supper-parties at st boniface would not be unpleasant and major pendennis longed to be off and have a little pheasant shooting at stillbrook and get rid of all annoyances and tracasseries of the village the widow and laura nervously set about the preparation for pen's kit and filled the trunks with his books and linen helen wrote cards with the name of arthur pendennis esq which were duly nailed to the boxes and at which both she and laura looked with tearful wistful eyes it was not until long long after he was gone that pen remembered how constant and tender the affection of these women had been and how selfish his own conduct was a night soon comes when the mail with echoing horn and blazing lamps stops at the lodge-gate of fair oaks and pen's trunks and his uncle's are placed on the roof of the carriage into which the pair presently afterwards entered helen and laura are standing by the evergreens of the shrubbery their figures lighted up by the coach lamps the guard cries all right in another instant the carriage whirls onward the lights disappear and helen's heart and prayers go with them her sainted benedictions follow the departing boy he has left the home nest in which he has been chafing and whither after his very first flight he returned bleeding and wounded he is eager to go forth again and try his restless wings 
How lonely the house looks without him. The corded trunks and book-boxes are there in his empty study. Laura asks leave to come and sleep in Helen's room, and when she has cried herself to sleep there, the mother goes softly into Penn's vacant chamber, and kneels down by the bed on which the moon was shining, and there prays for her boy, as mothers only know how to plead. He knows that her pure blessings are following him, as he is carried miles away. End of chapter 17